0: Hi there, Andrew Dunkley here. Thanks for joining us on this, the latest edition of Space Nuts, until next week when it won't be the latest edition. But anyway, we'll get there. Uh, coming up on this episode, we're going to stick to the solar system. Uh, we're going to get very close to home and talk about uh, my next-door neighbour. No, not quite that close, but uh, we're going to talk about the moon. It's uh, now being discovered that it's older than we thought. Fred remembers that. And mapping ice on Mars, we're talking water ice. Uh, We will also be uh, dealing with some questions uh, from Paul about the James Webb Space Telescope. Rennie is asking about how you calculate travel time in space. And a question from Sweden, why is astronomy important? I'll answer that one right now. Because... That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to cover all of that is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew,
1: and uh, broadcaster
0: at large yourself, too. Broadcaster at large? Yeah, I'm getting larger. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: it's oh, it's all right. <laughs> it's a problem when you go on cruise ships. They just tend to keep shoveling food in your face. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, I think they could ship. solve world, uh, third world hunger problems if they just sent cruise ships there. <laughs> I <it> would, everything would <laughs> be fine. Of doing yeah. One way of doing it. Hmm. But yes. Uh, otherwise, fine. Now uh, let's let's get stuck straight into it, Fred. Because there's a couple of interesting stories around. As always, it's always interesting stories in astronomy and space science. But this first one, uh, very close to home, because the moon has been uh, using some kind of face cream because it doesn't look as old as it really is. <laughs> they've just discovered. They've just discovered it's um, it's older than we thought. Yeah, that's
1: right, uh, and, and we're now talking about, um, I, I guess, what you might call precision dating uh, of of the the solar system. <clears throat> we've um, we've kind of narrowed down the the birth of the solar system to around about four point five seven, I think it is billion years ago, mm-hmm. um, and so you know you're talking about um, that's. Uh, Hundreds of a of a of a of a billion, which is uh, sort of tens of millions. Uh, so, so you've got um, you, you, we've got some nice accuracies being brought up. Um, and just to recap, we've talked about this many times before. We think the moon originated in the early history of the solar system when the planets were um, sort of in their infancy. Um, uh, Remembering that the solar system started off as uh, a, pl- a pl- protoplanetary disk, a, di- <coughs> a disc, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> a disk of material orbiting the infant sun, uh, which uh, was very dusty, had gas in it, and all of that came together uh, to form the planets as we know them today by this process we call accretion, which is yeah. stuff sticking together and typically under its own gravity. Um, so the planets at that time were very hot because the, the you know, the impacts, uh, the bombardment of all the debris in this pl- protoplanetary disk, uh, the energy of those impacts actually went into warming up the the, the protoplanets. Um, and so most of the early solar system, a lot of these worlds, which we now think of as solid bodies, like the four rocky planets, were actually molten. They had a, they they were what we might call lava worlds. They had molten surfaces. Yeah. And um, in the middle of this scenario, uh, here's the the Earth with its probably molten surface. Uh, Something comes along and smashes into it. uh, And uh, that then raises a cloud of debris, uh, which eventually coalesces to form the moon. And Mm -hmm. uh, as I've said many times before, we call that Hypothetical body. You probably remember the name yourself, the thing that smashed into the earth to form the moon. Thea. Yeah. Yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah. The the mother of the moon in I think it's Greek mythology. That's the first time in my so, life I've ever remembered something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can vouch that that's not the case. I think I've heard you do it twice, actually. It's true. Um, it's true. so Roddy. the <laughs> okay dave all right <laughs> uh let's uh keep going with the story uh, so um the the uh the so so this was you know it, it's very hard for us to imagine uh looking at the earth and the moon today these two marvelous bodies that mean so much to us mm. uh, to imagine um, a scenario where they were effectively molten bodies uh, but that's was certainly the case. It's how they both became spheres because they were sufficiently soft that gravity could pull them into a spherical shape. Uh, and, um, you know, it obviously took them a while to cool down. Yeah. So that, but that's a key proce- uh, part of the process in understanding the age of these things is actually when they stop being molten. Um, so, the And that's basically a lead into the story that we've got today, uh, which actually comes from uh, scientists uh, at the uh, University of Chicago and uh, the Field Museum, which I think is also in Chicago. Uh, it's uh, two, two very eminent uh, planetary scientists who've done this work. This is not, you know, somebody's mad hypothesis. This is real, real stuff. Um, and what they what they reason is that if you can find crystals and you can s- somehow manage to date them, um, then the crystals only formed after the, the 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 moon solidified. So what you're doing is you're giving yourself a, a sort of minimum age for these crystals. Offer for, 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 the, for the origin of the moon yeah. uh, by measuring the time when these things actually crystallized, because that's more or less the same time. It probably wouldn't have stayed molten for very long, this uh, lunar magma ocean, as they call it. And so what they've done is they've gone back to 1972 <laughs> when um, Apollo 17 brought back samples of moon dust, uh, some part of that, is it 385 kilograms or so of stuff mm. that came back from the moon with the Apollo astronauts. And they've reanalyzed uh, some of the crystals that that dust um, contains. Uh, and in particular, what they're looking at are crystals of zircon, um, which is, um, you know, mineral that's uh, that's commonly found. Uh, but, but they've, So they've taken this 1972 sample and they've reanalyzed it using absolutely up-to-date techniques which weren't available in 1972, uh, including uh, a process called atom probe tomography. Well, tomography is uh, looking at the shapes of things, uh, not cutting things to to see their shape, but we all know what it is because we've seen computer-assisted tomographs of our own bodies often. I have, certainly. Um, But this is at at the atomic level. And then they can combine that with something called radiometric dating. And what they're doing is actually looking at the atoms themselves inside these zircon crystals and, and measuring um another property andrew that's really important in this is the level of radioactive decay that's how the old carbon thir- uh, carbon 14 dating works yeah uh, because you're looking at the how how much of one isotope of carbon there is compared with another. And you know that one turns into another over time. And if you can measure the relative amounts, then you know when that uh, when that was laid down. That's only oper- operable for organic material like wood and bodies and things of that sort. Uh, but yeah. they're, they're doing this with atoms. Um, and yet, so that is the bottom line. The answer they come out with is uh, from the age of those crystals, they suggest that the moon is at least 4.46 million years old, which is 40 million years older than we thought it was. Wow. That's that's a huge number. It is, yeah. And, and you know, when you compare it with 4.57 billion years for the age of the solar system, it means that it was very, very early on Mm. in the history of the solar system that the moon was formed. The moon is a truly ancient body. It's uh, something, you know, it's nearly as ancient as me.
0: Yeah. Well, it is old and gray, basically. (laughs) It's pretty bald in places as well, isn't it? It are not its very bald, very bald in places. Um, I, I, I suppose the question for me, though, is um, if the moon is 40 million years older than we thought, does that mean the Earth is 40 million years older than we thought? Or is that not the same say, thing?
1: It, it probably does, actually. Um, it, 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 I, I, you've got two things here. You've got the formation of the Earth and then the, this, this impact that caused the uh, the moon to be formed, so but so what this research is doing is specifically looking at when the moon cooled after that event mm. now um, it begs the question: did the Earth and moon cool at the same time? and actually uh, we think the moon cooled earlier than the Earth did
0: um, because we leave believe- the fridge open no <laughs> yeah
1: yeah that's right actually that's a bad thing to do under any circumstances but um uh the um uh the the, the, the so so one of the, one of the reasons why we we believe the moon cooled uh, earlier than the earth is the the fact that the the moon has these extraordinary differences between the near side and the far side mm. uh, so the, the near side has a thin crust and it's got all the lava flows which we see as the maria, the grey areas the backside is nothing like that, it's mountainous, cratered there's about one or two of these little grey areas but they're nothing like as big as the ones on, on the side facing us and we think that is because the, the tidal locking of the moon into the earth so that it always faced the earth took place very soon after the formation of the moon because the two bodies were a lot closer together then than they are now yeah and, uh, and we think that earth was still hot still a magma world uh, and that is why the the backside of the moon which would be a cooler side actually got a thicker crust because the, uh, the 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 gases the silicates that that were sort of in vapor form could condense more readily on the backside of the moon because it's actually cooler yeah. and so what you what you what what the suggestion is um, is that um, those zircon crystals may well have formed uh, earlier than similar things on the earth because the earth was still molten at that time um, so i i don't think having said the opposite of this at the beginning of this Answer: I don't think you can necessarily draw any conclusions about the age of the Earth from what we're seeing on the Moon. I suspect okay. our understanding of the age of the Earth is 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 um, you know is is still much the same four point five
0: seven billion years. If you want to be really technical about it, everything's the same age because it all sort of came into existence at the exact same yeah. f- moment at the flash of the Big Bang.
1: Well, that, well, that's certainly true. Yes, that that that's true. Um, if you're going back to the deep past, but yeah. we're not doing that in this instance. We're going back to the shallow past, just the edge of the solar system, a mere four point yeah. five seven
0: billion years. The comprehensible past. <laughs>
1: Well, yes, that's right. In many ways, um, yeah, we understand. I think we understand the way the solar system originated a lot better than we understand the Big
0: Bang. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here's here's just a question that popped into my mind: uh, When Theia hit the molten Earth and caused the Moon to spit out, why didn't it get reabsorbed into the Earth? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so that that's a great question. So that the, the um, basically it's the energy of of Thea, the impact energy. The kinetic energy. Theo was half the size of the Earth. It's a Mars-sized object. Mm. So that is one enormous cloud. And, yes, you can well imagine a debris cloud, uh, which, because that impact was so energetic, what it does is pushes the debris from it uh, out faster than the, basically faster than the escape velocity of the Earth. Uh, And so some of that stuff would indeed have gone off into space and become interstellar dust. But enough of it was put into orbit around the Earth that then there was time for that to gravitationally coalesce by the same accretion process that formed the Earth but at a later stage
0: uh, to form the Moon. So it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, um, and, and it's, and that, and that it's impact, all about the energy. That impact's become crucial uh, in the development of life on Earth because if that hadn't happened, this would be a completely different planet, would it not? It would, yeah, that's right. For a start, it wouldn't have a moon
1: uh, unless we'd captured another one. And mm. the moon is thought to have stabilized the rotation of the Earth. The fact that the moon's a body with 180th of the mass of the Earth, that's quite high for a, a satellite compared with its parent body when you think yeah. of things like EO compared with Jupiter, for example. Mm. Uh, so um, so that's that's like acted as a flywheel to to stabilize the Earth's rotation. And
0: that in itself has been... Instrumental in uh, the ev- evolution of life on Earth. It's fascinating, isn't it, when you really think about it. That, that one yeah. thing in the whole history of the universe um, made made us possible. Uh, how big would Earth be if Thea didn't hit us?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it would be uh, slightly bigger, twelve and a half thousand kilometers, like, like it is now, or thirteen thousand kilometers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, possibly. I mean, you've, you you know, uh, and, and you, you're right to kind of highlight that because it it goes to the heart of one of the problems that has faced this theory of Theia over the years: that you expect the moon to be made mostly of rock from Theia uh but it's not it's made mostly of rock from earth and yeah. um, and and the the that was we've covered this before several times but it was japanese scientists who figured out probably 4 years ago now 5 years ago perhaps that um if the earth was still a magma uh world with a or a lava world with a you know with a molten uh surface then um uh if that happens and something clouts it, then it, you tend to get the debris being part of the earth rather than part of the earth. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, yeah, you know, it, it begs the question how big would the earth have been if it hadn't found this hit? I don't know the answer to that. Um, mm. You've Sounds got a, you, you've got two. Tasted oh, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um just that I don't know everything, that's all. Uh, <laughs> pretty close. But... So, but you know, you've got two. Two conflicting things here. You've got the fact that um, a body has come along, hit the Earth, and in some ways combined its material with the Earth, but then you've got the negative side that some of that stuff's gone off to form the moon. So Mm -hmm. um, it's – I think the Earth – let's see. uh, uh, And, yeah, you can't do a calculation because you don't know how much of that debris would have gone off into space as well. Yeah, It's not a simple – checks and balances thing just because the energy involved. And then, yeah. so the answer is I don't know.
0: What happened to Thea? Is it just part of us? It didn't all got mixed up or it did
1: it uh, reflect? Uh, well, well, yeah, it's a, day, a lot of the debris. If you look at the simulation, uh, I think I've got it on my computer somewhere, the simulation that these scientists uh, pr- produced um, for their theory A lot of the Thea material disappears off into outer space. Oh, wow. There's a movie that you can watch, and they've color-coded it with material from Thea and material
0: from the moon. I'll have another look at it and see if Mm. I can deduce anything from that. No, it's intriguing. It just prompts so many questions. I mean, obviously, because I've just been asking them all, but (laughs) I'm sure sure it'll prompt some audience questions because um, whenever we talk about these things, people just start formulating different thoughts, and some of them are amazing questions. So um, we'll, we'll see if anything comes out of that. But, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting story about the the moon being uh, older than uh, we first thought, and you can read all about it in um, cosmosmagazine.com. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a short break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. NordVPN. Uh, right now, believe it or not, I am on holiday with my family on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia, and we're staying at a, a place which is a, a like a family resort, I suppose. Um, lots of things to see and do here, really geared for uh, families and children. Uh, and of course, they have Wi-Fi, uh, which is a public unsecured Wi-Fi service. So, naturally, you want to secure your uh, Access and I've got my phone and my tablet uh, secure with NordVPN, our sponsor, uh, and it, it's it's been seamless. It's been absolutely perfect. I have noticed no slowing of speed, no problems whatsoever, and I feel secure that nobody can hack me. I am not going to get spammed. I'm not going to have any problems, and I can do what I need to do, including the recording of this. NordVPN sponsorship spot, and it's, uh, it's all going to go perfectly well. Uh, and it, it, it feels good. It feels good to be able to use a public Wi-Fi system that hundreds of people are using at the same time and know that um, you know, no unscrupulous thing is going to happen. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, as always, we are offering you a, a, a great deal uh, through our special uh, URL nordvpn.com spacenuts space nuts that's nordvpn.com spacenuts space nuts will get you to uh, the page where they've got a really good black friday deal going on the, uh, at the moment you can save big on nordvpn and get four extra months and don't forget there's a 30-day money back guarantee so a black friday deal for nordvpn once you go in You can click on the button that says uh, Get NordVPN, which I'll do right now because uh, I've got it all set up uh, through my own NordVPN service. And they have uh, the two-year plan, the one-year plan, the monthly plan, depending on which way you want to go. The longer you go, uh, the cheaper it gets month by month. And it is a really great deal. Uh, You get uh, all the bells and whistles. You can get the whole lot in one fell swoop which will cost you uh, a lot less than if you bought it uh, month by month, Uh, secure high-speed VPN, malware protection tracker and ad blocker, cross-platform password manager, which I found extremely useful these last few days while I've been away, Uh, the data breach scanner, the one terabyte of cloud storage and the next generation file encryption. But have a look and see what suits you. And uh, pick the plan that you want. I, I, you won't be disappointed. It is so very, very useful and seamless. Absolutely seamless, as you can witness through the fact that I'm doing this on a resort uh, Wi-Fi service through NordVPN. So uh, yeah, click on the uh, the link. Just go to nordvpn.com/spacenuts. Nordvpn.com. Slash space nuts, uh, space slash space nuts, mm. and click on Get Nord VPN and go from there. You won't be disappointed. Now back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and everything with a go. Space nuts. Now we move a little way further out than the moon to a planet that no one ever talks about called <laughs> Mars. <laughs> oh, well, it's your favourite planet. Um, it is. That's why
1: I'm mm. we... Cover it again, um, and yeah, I think it's a it's a very nice story um, with um, a very nice acronym, SWIM. That's swim acronym. which stands swim. for what? The subsurface water ice mapping project. Oh, swim. that's a good one. It's it actually is because s- it's it's SWIM. It's, it's where <laughs> It's SWIM, really. It's SWIM. Yeah, uh, maybe SWIM's better, but um, they call it SWIM, um, and. You can swim in water, and water is what they're looking for, but it's yes. ice.
0: Um, now, so straight known- up, straight up I'm, I'm going to ask you to dispel a myth or otherwise, but I always, growing up, was led to believe that the ice on the moon was all carbon dioxide ice, not so by the sound of it. Sorry, the ice on Mars. On Mars, sorry. I keep doing yeah, that, don't no. I? They both start with them. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, the water, the, the the ice on Mars was all carbon dioxide ice. Uh why, not, yes, I, I th- yeah, I don't know why that th- was th- always a thing, but that's what I was led to believe as a kid. Um,
1: I think um, you're right, and and I think I would have said the same thing. I mean, I was a kid about hundred years before you were, but uh, <laughs> carbon carbon dioxide ice, and and it's certainly true that some of it is, uh, because. Y- y- um, we know that uh, a lot of the frost uh, that we see uh, around the poles of Mars is carbon dioxide, because that's where the temperature gets low enough for carbon dioxide to freeze out. Uh, which, if I remember rightly, is around about it's around about ninety, I think minus ninety Celsius, mm. 90, 85, 90, something like that. Can't remember the details, uh, but um, so there is definitely carbon dioxide frost. Uh, in winter on Mars, and I think that's true uh, in uh, mostly in the Arctic regions and the Antarctic regions. Oh, okay. But but um, a lot more of uh, of Mars's ice is water ice, and in fact, uh, a statistic that amazed me when I read it, and I think it's on a NASA page. So this was fairly authentic, this is quite some years ago, um, that if you melted the water ice just on the moon's uh, south polar cap, you'd flood the planet to a depth of 10 meters or something. Is that right? Yeah, it's just colossal amounts of water. That's right, yeah. Uh, And, you know, in a way that... um, it's why uh, we are so concerned about the polar caps here on planet Earth, because so much is locked away in there. If you start melting them all, you've suddenly got um, uh, ocean sea level rise. We've seen see it already in uh, in the Pacific Islands. Well, Fred, I I, uh, but, uh,
0: but, happened, it, I happened across a story this morning that uh, there's one group of scientists that are saying uh, it's too late. We've passed the point of no return in yeah. terms of climate change well, on yeah, the planet. Mm-hmm. The, the tipping point, that's right. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's the scary stuff.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is scary stuff. Uh, mm. Mars, on the other hand, uh, it's got lots of ice, but it's locked up. Um, and, and certainly people used to think that the poles were the only place where you, you do have water ice on Mars. But then many, many discoveries – made since then and particularly with was it phoenix the spacecraft that sat in the northern arctic uh just a little platform not a rover this must be back in 2008 actually it was a long time ago it's the
0: one that used uh, the
1: backhoe to uh, scrape the surface yeah that's right a little yeah little backhoe to scrape the surface and sure enough within a couple of millimeters down they hit ice. It's yep. a permafrost there. There's a They're famous photo there. of that. Mm. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's one photo I sometimes show in talks when I'm talking about that shows uh, the scrapings on the day it was done and then the scrapings two Martian days later. And you can see little scraps of material in the one where it's just been done, which are lump- lumps of ice and 2 days later they've gone because they they sublime they go straight from a solid to a gas they don't melt because the air's yes. too low uh, and then um, so that was really good evidence that it was water ice that you are talking about but then it was analyzed uh by the equipment on board phoenix and sure enough it was water ice so what um what the story is today uh, with the swim project is um because ice is really going to be such a major resource for future astronauts on Mars. Yeah. Uh, that, that, uh, NASA thinks it's a good idea to have a map where we know we've found it. Um, and they've used several different uh, sources of, of data, um, uh, including, uh, m- well, many, many NASA missions, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, uh Mars Odyssey, 2001 Mars Odyssey uh, project. Uh, And now there's one called... uh, (laughs) uh, Hello, uh, this is NASA. (laughs) It
0: probably is NASA, yes, complaining. Hang on a minute. Sorry, let me Mm -hmm. just deal with this. Uh, I love that traditional old ringtone too. Oh, hum, hum, hum.
1: We also- so, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was. Uh, the trouble is I, I can't even put my phone on silent because it also rings on my computer now because <laughs> oh, the two talk right. to each other. Yeah, they do that, don't <laughs> so they? So there's no point in putting it on silent. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, so, yes, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Odyssey, and Mars Global Surveyor. Uh, and so what they've done is, you know, they've taken all these data sets Uh, And it essentially comes to a point where you identify the likeliest places to find Martian ice Mm -hmm. that you could dig up by future missions. Um, And one of the things that they look for, this is a really interesting one as well, uh, they look for recent impact craters on Mars uh, because uh, often if you have an impact crater... Uh, And it might only be, you know, a few metres across because they can be resolved now by all these orbiting spacecraft looking down on Mars. Uh, Have an impact crater that's small like that. Uh, What it does is it, it, um, you know, it blows away the subsurface soil uh, and possibly rock as well. Uh, And what you get is an ice layer underneath. Um, So basically they can colour code the surface to reveal the ice. Uh, if From these impact craters So they've used that as well uh, To contribute to this map uh, The swim map that's been produced It's um, w- worth a look for it It's uh, it's a NASA uh, page uh, The uh,
0: headline is NASA is locating ice on Mars With this new map mm. Yeah, is it going to be an actual map? Are they actually going to produce the map Proper, or is this just what They're well, calling the, the project? Oh, I'm looking at it Oh, are
1: you? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um, okay. yeah, this is. I mean, it's a work in progress, obviously, because uh, uh, it's a you know it's a mapping project. Oh yeah. Uh, it, yes. If you yeah, go found to that it. website, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah see, so yeah, there's I, several I'm versions of it. I'm not like other people. I don't look at the pictures. I just go straight to the text. So, I can, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, you would do that's <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. A, as a radio broadcaster, you can't talk about things that people can't see, but exactly. we're doing it on. Oh, Space nuts. No. <laughs> okay. But yeah, a real I mean, yeah. interesting, you know, yeah, little little points where they've where they've picked out these ice ice revealing craters. Um and so it's a yeah, work in progress. It's obviously going to continue. Very nice
0: project, swimming. Yeah. I love the name of that. That's very clever. Yeah. I'll I'll give them a, 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 a an A plus for that one, given how astronomers and space scientists tend to name things rather poorly. But uh, that's a a very good one. All right. Yes, uh, as Fred said, if you want to um, chase that one up and learn more about the search for water ice on Mars, uh, nasa.gov is the website, and you should be able to track that one down pretty easily uh, through a Google search or anything like that. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. (laughs) Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, you uh, want to tackle some questions?
1: Why not? And I want to um, also just uh, uh, do a little recap of one of the stories we covered in a question a couple of weeks ago, I think. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. What was the, Do you want to do that first? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, you might remember um, Peter, a.k.a. Toddy, uh, uh, asked a question about uh, what, how the universe would look if if uh, there was no dark matter, dark matter, yeah, and um, and we, I've kind of waffled about it and said, I wonder if it would mean that because there's no kind of dark matter scaffolding in the universe to act as a gravitational um, sort of centre for uh, the hydrogen, if you wouldn't form galaxies. I wondered if it would not be possible to form galaxies. Hmm. Uh, and so um we have uh and, and we were t- we were talking also about mod the uh, modified newtonian dynamics uh, uh which is an alternative view of the universe that attempts to eliminate dark matter it suggests that at very low accelerations newton's laws don't hold uh and you've got something else yeah um different accelerations and we have uh, we've got a, a our kind of a secret route into the the world of mond modified newtonian dynamics is young peter Verwayen, who's a space nuts listener and a good friend and he uh I, I think in fact i think i invited him uh in that episode to comment on it and he has done <laughs> so oh, very good. let me read what peter says uh which sure. is it's uh, you know it's great stuff he says hi fred that's a good start. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to the latest latest episode of Space Nuts, and here I am correcting you about MOND <laughs> with regard to Peter. <laughs> with regard to Peter or Toddy's question, you were nearly right, but the wrong way around. MOND forms huge galaxies, far too large. So Peter's saying the theory's still got some way to go. Uh, he says simulations show that a universe ruled by MOND would consist of only a few huge galaxies with little or no other structure. This Mm -hmm. is because Mondian gravity is far too strong in regions of uniform density, just like like just after the Big Bang. Voids form and are cleared too quickly and everything collapses into truly massive galaxies and black, uh, sorry, truly massive black holes and galaxies. And then he comments on the end, we're working on the solution.
0: <laughs> good on you, Peter. <laughs> yeah. uh, keep up your good work. Uh, it's great. You know, that's so informative as well. It is. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the solution would be blue tack. That would be I think would that solves a lot of things. <laughs> yes, it does, you know, a gaffer tape, maybe. Yeah, yeah. We've got some of that too. Um, all oh, right. That well that tape. should that should uh, solve Toddy's problem. Um, wrote to us a few weeks ago. Well, it, yeah, well, it's, it, it's the answer to uh, to the question, which was a great
1: question. And, oh, That's uh, yes, yeah. what you get. You get the into galaxies, galaxies, which we don't have. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's move on to a question now from Paul. Hi, Andrew and Fred. It's Paul here from Brisbane. My question is
1: about how is the James Webb Space Telescope able to see galaxies? That were 300 million years after the Big Bang.
0: If we all started at a singularity, how could those galaxies have been more than 300 million light years from us, even if they were um, expanding away from us at the speed of light? And if they were only 300 million light years away, why have those photons not passed us long ago, even allowing for the expansion of the universe since then? It just seems like those photons have been traveling uh, for a very long time, which must have meant that at the time that they were emitted, the galaxies would have had to have been further away than they, than they appear to have been able to be to me. Thanks for the show. Love your work. Bye. Thank you, Paul. Uh, we get this question fairly regularly. Um, it's, it's, and it, it is one that uh, is prompted by head-scratching moments. Hang on. How can they see that? <laughs> how can they see something ancient when those photons are long gone? but it's not really that simple is it
1: no that's right uh, and you you're absolutely right Andrew. we do get this question a lot and paul i understand your frustration with uh, not being able to you know to, to 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 get your head around it because it is it it's not that an, an easier problem and, and of course um what you've just said talking about galaxies 300 uh, million years after the big bang uh Applies even more dramatically to the Big Bang itself, which we can still see. Mm. Uh, And that was, uh, you know, 13.8 billion years ago, we could still see the wall of radiation that uh, was, uh, you know, basically the the light of the Big Bang itself. It's now microwave radiation because of the expansion of the universe, but it's still there. So, um, what I always advise people is to sort of forget about the idea that you're looking from the outside and seeing photons going past the earth, because that's really not the way we look at this. The only way we can look at what we see is from our own vantage point. In other words, planet earth. And the bottom line is, as we look out into space, we're looking further back in time. That's how all of astronomy, at least on these large scales works. And Um, irrespective of the expansion of the universe, which has certainly gone on. It's expanded, I think, about 1,300 times uh, its size since the Big Bang, actually, since the um, period of inflation when it expanded a lot faster than that. So um, all we're doing is looking further and further back in time and seeing photons that are still coming to us from these ancient objects uh, and... um, that, that's the way it works. And you're always going to be able to see that. To do that with everything in the universe, galaxies that are only 300 billion years after the Big Bang, you'll see those. They're, in a sense, in the foreground. They're actually nearer to us than the, the furthest thing we can see, which is the cosmic microwave background radiation, the flash of the Big Bang itself. And the light from that is still coming to us. And I think I uh, – it's probably two or three episodes ago – in answer to a question from Rusty uh, of Donnybrook, uh, I, I, I gave that analogy about the why we can still see the flash of the Big Bang. It's the it's the cheering analogy where you've got an audience of fans cheering a band, and everybody suddenly falls silent uh, at the same instant, but you can still hear the cheering coming from yeah. uh, you know people around you, and it's the same with the flash of the Big Bang. Mm. So, um, so uh, I just uh, my. my my advice is always just think of it from our perspective. Sitting here on Earth, don't worry about photons that have gone past. Uh, just worry about the ones that we actually receive because that's all we can do is detect things from from our own vantage point and we still see
0: those photons. Yeah. I suppose um, to simplify it down to Andrew Dunkley level, uh, is it basically a case of anything that's emitting light, even you know, despite its age? is capable of being detected would that be a fair point? uh
1: yeah i think that's that's the bottom line as long as it's within um our, our, as long as it's in, within what we call the observable universe yeah and there's the observable universe is what we can see out basically out to the flash of the big bang we can't see, the universe goes on beyond that mm. uh, but we can't see beyond that because that our look back time is back to point, uh, actually, about uh, was it three hundred
0: eighty thousand years after the Big Bang itself? Yeah. Okay, so uh, that that's just put another question in my head. How is it that we can't see? Uh, how is it that the flash of the Big Bang is not at the edge of the universe? It's at the edge of what we can observe. Yeah, but uh, but if there's it, more it, universe sense-
1: beyond that, how how is that possible? Yeah, Be- because that. Um, that flash of the big bang that horizon is in a sense an illusion uh it's it's a it's it, in fact the best analogy is to where you were sitting on your cruise ship a fortnight ago or a week ago um uh i don't know whether you were out of sight of land but mm. when you if you were uh all you could see would be a horizon around you beyond which you can't see uh. but the fact that you can't see it uh doesn't stop there being an ocean beyond that's hidden from your view and that's the way the universe is so the horizon your horizon on your ship is an illusion uh, relating to your particular position it's not the whole universe or the, the whole world if you go somewhere else you see the same thing uh but it's uh, you know it, it's a, a different a different vantage
0: point so the horizon's different i get it very good all right Uh, Thank you, Paul. Let's move on to our next question from Rennie. Hi,
1: this is Rennie Trout from West Hills, California. Always appreciate your shows. My question today is, when you calculate how long it would take to get to a destination like the moon or a different galaxy at close to the speed of light, do you take into consideration the expansion rate of the universe in that
0: calculation. I'll be listening. Thank you. Thanks, Rehi. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh I suppose it depends how far you're going. But even if you're traveling to the moon, yeah. do you have to calculate that sort of stuff in? You, you
1: certainly need to calculate uh relativistic factors in. Uh you're not moving near to the speed of light even in a you know in an Apollo spacecraft. You're speeds about 11 kilometers per second. Um, so, so you've got to do things like relativistic time dilation and stuff of that sort, uh, mm-hmm. and the gravitational uh, time dilation as well, which is kind of both of those are on, on the scale of astronauts going to the moon as small, but they would have been taken into account in the cal- na- navigation calculations. Um, however, the expansion of the universe over scales like the three hundred eighty thousand kilometers to the moon uh, is totally negligible. Um, so we, y- you don't start seeing any impact of that until you get to, um, you know, galaxies which are p- perhaps tens of millions of light years away. Right, uh, and so far at the moment we haven't got any way of traveling in those. If if we did, if we had. Um, kind of wormhole technology that would let us get instantaneously from one bit of the universe to another. You would have to take that into account. You'd definitely
0: have to take that expansion of the universe into account, but we have well, got that. that would, if you, if, you tra- if you travelled by wormhole, that would technically be time travel, wouldn't it? Because uh, what you're seeing is ancient, but instantly getting there suddenly puts it in the present and it's not not going to be there anymore, is it? Yeah. You'd have to allow for that. <laughs> Yes that's right. How do you work that one out? do no. Oh, no
1: no. Oh it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was here yesterday. Yeah that's it.
0: Yes. Well that's right. It, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah it, it, it's, it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, that look I no. Um because we we've, we've had questions in the past from people saying look if you could travel through time would you have to allow for the landing point on earth to be in a different place because you're well, going there at a different quite, yeah. time and a you know, totally different yeah. era or whatever. It's not It's not going to be where you left yeah. from, whether you're going forwards or backwards. It's going to be completely. Whoops. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's Jordi, Ge- our dog's spotted. He, he said, God, it really annoys me when he does that. <laughs> it's usually, you know, I, it's I usually a question. cockatoo or, or something that's landed on the. <laughs> he's in another room as well. He shrieks away, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm got i have got to give him a good talking to him about that. Yeah. He's, he's so, only six
0: months old, so I think he's something to do with that. Uh, that's all right. Um, so the answer to you, Rennie's question cross- of thought, <laughs> no, what? no, not really. But um, the, the 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 simple answer to Rennie's question is yes. Over a long haul, you would have to allow for all of those right. contingencies, right. or that's, you'd end up right. you'd end up stranded somewhere. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line, isn't it? It is. Yeah.
1: See?
0: <laughs> Geordie's right. See, Geordie agrees as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I yeah, think we covered that, Rennie. Um, I don't know. We, yeah, I, I think we covered it. Yeah, I think we got it. So, yes, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, let's uh, take a text question now from, um, no, I hope I get the name of this right, Marn Soberg from Sweden. Uh, I love space physics and astronomy, but sometimes when I listen and read about a distant object in the sky, I start to ask questions. And this is an old chestnut that we've been asked many times. Why is it important to know about uh, objects uh, that are a quadrillion miles away? How does this benefit me? I believe that this question is something scientists and astronomers around the world encounter every day, especially when trying to get funding. Uh, Why is it important, and how can this move humanity forward? Why should more people care about what happens outside our little blue dot? Bottom line, why is astronomy important? Thank you, Marne. That is a great question, not an uncommon one, as you say. That's right. So... um... And it
1: is. And of course, uh, astronomers need to know the answer to that question because they are, you know, seeking funding. And in fact, um, let me just put it this way. One of the reasons why I got into science outreach, and this is now 50 years ago, uh, when I started working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory Mm -hmm. um, and realised that I was being paid from the public purse to do stuff that was... Not immediately uh, beneficial to humans, um, so I had to. I had a moment of reckoning with that, and thought, "Well, at the very least, uh, I've, I've got to be able to tell people about what we're doing, just so that they get some, at least, some interest from it." Uh, but of course, the answer is much more than that. Um, I, I do. I do remember. A colleague of mine at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. I won't mention his name, uh, and um, he somebody said, "So, what use is astronomy?" And he said, "Oh, astronomy is the end product of civilization." Oh. And I thought well, that's a bit arrogant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, that's
1: big, <laughs> but but I think what he what he was saying was, if you have a society that's kind of sufficiently evolved that it doesn't need to worry about um, the, the, the three main things, which are survival, uh, eating and drinking, you know, managing to sustain yourself and, and managing to reproduce. That's kind of basic bottom lines of what life is about. Yeah. Uh, and in some places in the world, and we're reminded of that at the moment, that they're actually at that level. Uh, but um, for, for going beyond that, um, you know, you might ask, well, what's the use of music or what is the use of, uh, of, of theatre? Uh, and astronomy sort of falls almost into those categories, but with some rather more significant aspects because um, it is a, a investment in astronomy in the past and sometimes in the quite distant past that allows our world to be like it is today. And the lives that we have uh, are very much a product uh, of of some of the technologies that uh, have actually arisen because of astronomy. Hmm. Um, And I'm thinking specifically, uh, you hold up, remember that mobile phone that rang and interrupted us a few minutes ago? Yeah. There are three technologies in there which... uh, uh, exactly like that, yeah, which uh, basically, oh, uh, the, the fact that they uh, are there uh, is what allows us to, uh, to use them, and it comes from astronomy. So Wi-Fi uh, was developed by radio astronomers to yes. work out where the signals were going. The sensor, the image sensor in your phone, started its life in astronomical research. Uh, uh, there, was, there was military stuff went into that as well, but astronomers actually pioneered the use of detectors to record images electronically at a very sensitive level. And the third one, which goes back one hundred and eight years, is that right to nineteen fifteen? General relativity allows uh, GPS to work. G- yeah, I was going to Einstein's great theory, mm. and it was. Uh, proven by astronomers astronomers had the wherewithal to demonstrate that general relativity is correct we now live in an era where um it we use it every single day uh in the gps in our phone if you didn't have relativistic corrections your gps would be at least 10 kilometers out and that is pretty useless if you're trying to find very a useless yes yeah, especially uh, driving around sydney yeah, harbour so so, so the the bottom line there is what you're saying is that um, government investments in astronomy, whether they're in the academic sector or in infrastructure like the stuff I work in, um, is done with a with a view to, uh, in in a sense, protecting the future, or or uh, uh, you know, with with an eye to what future developments might come from it. Now mm. we don't know what future developments might come from knowing, for example, that fast radio bursts in objects 8 billion years ago uh, are being received today. But the physical processes that are going on in those fast radio bursts, astronomy stretches physics to its absolute limits because the energies that are involved are usually far more than we can create in a particle accelerator on Earth. So it lets us understand the physical world in ways that, we we have no idea how that might impact on humans uh that, that you know we might have time travel one day or space or or um, travel that uh, that that at the moment is is by means that we simply have never thought of and a lot of that comes from astronomy so that's one one reason uh, and it's just the curiosity to see uh things that may impact one day on how we live our lives Another is inspiration. It does inspire people into science. Uh, it's a great way of attracting kids into science. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of the flagships of STEM education. Uh, if, you, if you can get uh, uh, eight-year-olds interested in black holes um, and then you heat that interest up, then you've, you've suddenly got somebody with a scientific uh, mind and who can uh, who, who can... Basically, see the benefits of uh, how science works. Uh, all of that education, I- um, I- um, inspiration. Uh, there, there are aspects of astronomy that that do impact our day to day lives. And one of them would be if there was um, a potentially hazardous asteroid that exactly. uh, needed to be observed by the world's most sensitive telescopes. Uh, you're going to want to know where it is and when it's going to when it's going to hit the Earth. So, all of those things conspire together to give government's an incentive to fund astronomy, Uh, we still have to work very hard on it. Uh, Astronomical funding is not great. Um, I do remember a statistic I worked out back in 2000 uh, was that the public money that went into the Sydney Olympic Games, is that 2000 it was, wasn't it? Yeah. The public money that went into those games was enough to run the whole of Australian astronomy for 100 years. Uh, And that just gives you an idea of what you're talking about in terms of budgets. It's probably, you know, it's more than that now, but um, that that, at that time was the equation. So astronomy is actually pretty cheap uh, Mm. compared with some of the other things that we do. Um, Actually, there's another statistic that uh, I quite often use, and that is... Uh, let me see if I can pull the numbers into my head. Uh, if you have um, uh, a two billion dollar project, and that would be the extremely large telescope, uh, that's enough to run the the US military for slightly less than a
0: day. Yeah, that's a. That's- yeah, that sort of puts it in perspective rather rapidly, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. I th- I think for a
1: so, um... so the, you know, go on. No, I was just going to say what what we're saying is that astronomy. Whilst some of these numbers look big, and particularly in the space world, I mean that the European uh, Southern Observatory's ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope, which has got that two billion dollar price tag or thereabouts is absolutely at the top end of what we in, ast- in astronomy uh, look at. Most of our budgets are way, way below that. Uh, and so
0: um, that that just puts it a little bit in- into perspective. Indeed. I, I think you had people sold on mobile phones. If they couldn't have their mobile phones, the world would be in <laughs> dire right. peril. So all you have to say is, well, it if there was it. no astronomy, you wouldn't have a mobile phone. They'd go. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I get it. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> end of story. <laughs> yeah, the story. Total end of story. Totally end of story. Yeah. Um, great question, though, and it, it it's one that always um, comes up and it's worth re-investigating, reinve- uh, re- um, if you like, from time to time. Thanks, Man, and hope all is well in speed uh, if you have a question for us, uh, please send it through via our website. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. SpaceNutsPodcast.com is where you can find us and have a look around while you're there. Uh, Fred, we're done. Thank you so much. It was uh, an enlightening program this week for a change. Uh-huh. Yeah, full of, <laughs> <Full> of light. <life. laughs> Absolutely.
1: All right. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Pleasure. Thank you, Fred. a we'll pleasure. You. We'll the- see you on the next episode. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, yeah. part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. And thank you to you for listening and thanks to our patrons, of course, who um, contribute to the show. We really appreciate that. And you can do the same too through our website. And don't forget to keep those cards and letters coming in. And thanks to Hugh in the studio because... And from me, Andrew Dunkley, um, we'll catch you again on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.